You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Vecina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Hello, and welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. I'm Rishi Shah, and I will be your host today. I'm joined by Professor Joseph Veshi, an adjunct professor of the management department of the Stillman School of Business. He has over 30 years of professional IT business leadership experience at multiple Fortune 100 companies, including UPS, KPMG, VMware, Dell, and Cisco. With his transition into teaching, he now provides students essential insight into IT and business global practices with an emphasis on forming relations. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. And it was interesting, off air, we were talking about how, you know, we come from, I guess, different parts of the workforce where um, I'm pursuing more of a science-related degree where you come from a background of business and IT. But what I love so much is not only, you know, will I get to hear your story, but uh, we get we are united by the common idea of leadership, and that's actually where I wanted to start. So, with a more general look on leadership, uh, is there someone or something that inspired your style of leadership? Sure. So, watching the HBO miniseries from many many years ago called Band of Brothers, the main character there started off as a lieutenant, sure. and he worked his up to to a captain and a major. Major Dick Winters. He was a World War II part of Easy Company the 2nd Battalion, part of the 506th Parachute uh, Infantry Regiment, the 101st Airborne Division. True, true leader. I read his book called Beyond Band of Brothers, and his famous line is, follow me. He's not just managing people and pointing them out into the, into the uh, war zone. He would climb up over the trenches and say, follow me, rolls up his sleeves, and likes to work with his fellow team members and right. fellow infantry. Absolutely. And I think that's so important. You know, they often say the phrase, you know, show, don't tell. Exactly. And not only does he show his humility by being with the team, as you mentioned, and working with them, but he makes sure to show first and not tell, which is so important when you're trying to follow someone because having an example is so much more concrete, so much more you're able to copy. And so you're able to be better as a team overall because of that. Exactly. A true leader who's able to see the, the forest among the trees. There are certain times that you need to delegate and direct and tell them, let me know how you make out. But just like in my classroom, I'm like, we're all in this together. Just like when I led teams throughout my career, I'm like, I'm here to help. Let's do this together. We're all in this together. And you lead by example. Absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting you bring up the commander. As with different people, everyone values different things when they lead. And so I want to ask you, with all of your leadership experience, what values do you hold closest to you when you lead? We pretty much touched upon it on the previous question. It's, it's follow me, lead by example. We're all in this together. Let's get it done. If you had to stay late, uh, come in early, it wouldn't be like in my career, it wouldn't be like, all right, let me know when you're done. Give me a call. I'm home on vacation. No, I was like, let's go in together. Let's get this done. Let's work together. We're all in together. We have a common goal, a common interest, a common endpoint to accomplish. That's actually so fascinating because, you know, people don't realize that life doesn't stop even when you're mm -hmm. on vacation, right, as you mentioned. And 
Uh, I'm sure we'll get more into your ex- specific experience later on. Yes. Uh, I wanted to talk about, I guess, the flip side. We've been describing wonderful leadership and the values that surround it. But on the flip side is criticism. Everyone has to face criticism, whether you are part of the team or the leader of the team. And I guess for you, what strategies do you employ to face criticism? And can you maybe talk about a time where you use criticism to make you a better leader? Sure. So I like to learn from everybody. Just because I'm in front of a classroom, just because I'm leading a team in IT, doesn't mean I can't learn anything from you. I can learn from my manager. I can learn from my direct reports. I can learn from my students. I can learn from my daughter. I learn from my cat. I can learn something every day. So ultimately, you have to smile. You have to take it all and keep an open mind. Your mind is like an umbrella. It has to be open in order for it to work. So um, I'm always looking to learn from everyone and everybody and evolve and become better. Absolutely. And I really love the point, you know, especially that you learn from everybody, including you know, the animals that you have. <laughs> um, I find that people with egos that hold their egos and their prize to the highest degree often don't command the respect of the people on their team. And so I, I really appreciate your point there. So let's, let's, let's talk about ego for a second. Absolutely. Um, and how you need to have a sense of humility. So I certainly learned that when I left UPS after 21 years of leading a team, I went to Cisco. I thought I knew everything. Walked in the door, met some people that knew a lot more than me. You better check your ego at the door. I was humbled very quickly. And I learned a lot from them. And uh, when you work for one company, um, there's pros and cons. You need to have a balance, but you're in a silo. And then when I went to Cisco and I was exposed to other companies like through Cisco, like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and Citi and J.P. Morgan Chase, it just opened my mind. And that's what I like to do with my students. When I'm in front of the classroom, give me constructive feedback. How can I make this class better? The syllabus is evolving. I'm open to change it. Ultimately, I'm the captain of the ship. I need to get through the content. I need to deliver the material that you have to learn. And But I'm open to change. And I change the syllabus on the fly. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. You know, I change the the, the due date and the time when assignments were were expected. Um, I'm open. Work with me. Help me. Help me make me better and this class better for the future students. Absolutely. And you touched on my a little bit on my next question. And so I want to dive a little bit deeper. You mentioned that you allow students to give you feedback, uh, especially on how to adjust a syllabus or if they're not understanding a lesson to go over it deeper. You know, why do you feel it's important to, you know, receive feedback from some students? Ultimately, you're the expert and the students are there to learn. And, you know, some would say that, you know, the students have no right to speak up Mm -hmm. on, you know, matters like that. Why do you feel that's so important when you, you know, teach? I tell my students day one, just because I'm in front of the classroom, I'm a regular guy. I'm nothing special. Yeah, I, I paid my time. I did my studies. I got my degrees. I put my time in, in the trenches with multiple Fortune 50 companies. But I'm not perfect, and I, I want to learn and help me make this class better. So um, there, are, there are, are, are plenty of times when I needed to adjust the syllabus, and if something's not, not working for them. As an example, my LinkedIn profile, my resume, plenty of times it's done. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's good enough. <laughs> I come back a week, a month, six months later. I'm like, what was I thinking? It, it needs to change. <laughs> I thought I was done. No, it's it's an evolving. Pro- you know, what does good look like? Absolutely. And it's an evolving. Pro- Don't be a perfectionist, because it's never ending. 
So it's like, what does good look like? It's good enough, and then you revisit it. You said, I'm still working on my, I'm, I'm still working on my resume, my LinkedIn profile. It's never one and done. It's something that always evolves over time. You get different mindset, different perspectives. I want to have different perspectives from all the students, and I want to help them with their resume, their LinkedIn profile, networking with companies and individuals that are applying for a job, and take my feedback. I, I genuinely care. Use my information I'm giving you as another tool in your tool belt. Go to all the writing resume seminars here. Talk to other professors. Talk to all the, the career opportunities and the, and the open houses that they have with companies. Do it all. Leave no stones unturned. And I just want to contribute to their another tool in their tool belt. First of all, that is wonderful. Thank you for that. I wanted to talk about something that you mentioned in your answer again, which is networking. Because networking is not necessarily something that a whole course is necessarily dedicated to. But it's something that in the 21st century that is harped upon incessantly. Like, What do you feel the importance of networking is to the point where you, you go out of your way in class time to talk about networking? So it goes back to many things, including the LinkedIn profile. You want to get your profile to an all-star status that has to do with the number of connections and how complete it is, and among other things. But you need to connect with people. I have a lot of connections. You connect with me, and you can see who I'm connected with. It just helps open doors. I could do soft introductions for you. If you're applying to a company, say Morgan Stanley in Lower Manhattan or somewhere in Jersey, I could... If I know the, uh, someone there you're interviewing with, I can help you connect with them, do a soft introduction. It's a lot of times it's not what you know, it's who you know. And when I was a hiring manager, I want to hire the person that is the best fit for the position. And if someone can give me a recommendation on this person that's coming in, all the better. And that's what I'm looking to do to the students. If I could help you anyway, introduce you to other, other uh, networks, that you're uh, interviewing with as, a, as opposed to because people that are interviewing, they get, uh, you know, several resumes and you want to make it through the cut. And if any little bit can help, you're more than happy to help. So networking all the way. I connected with you on LinkedIn here. What am I connecting with an undergraduate student for? Because I, I, I want to, if I could help or you could help me, all the better. You bring up an excellent point, which is humans, right? At the end of the day, no matter what you do, it Humans are social beings, and we need totally. to connect. You know, Going back to your comments on constantly improving your resume and your LinkedIn, it's because as humans, we're not perfect. We were continuously growing. And so it's important to grow, and you only grow when you are looking to learn from others. And so I, I really appreciate that point. And you, you nailed it about growing. You nailed it. Absolutely. I love your perspective on how humanism mixes with leadership. So... I want to go back a little bit to a background of yourself. Was this something you learned maybe in your student days, or how did you get into the idea of, I want to take up leadership positions? When did that start? So I started early on in my undergraduate position, in my undergraduate studies, seeing the professors in front of the classroom and how they're interacting with students. And then when I went into my first real job, if you will, at UPS, or as I told you, I spent over 21 years there, looking at the other leaders around me, learning about the culture, strong culture there, and culture eats strategy every day of the week. Company has a great strategy. Without any culture, companies think they have culture. They'll talk about culture, but they really don't have culture. And I could talk to you all about culture all day and all night. You need to make sure your employees are happy 
and they will go back and satisfy your customers and the, and the company that they work for. But seeing the leaders um, at UPS, and then I, I, I retired from that, I went to Cisco, seeing the leaders there and how they care about their, their people and how they lead by example and how they, um, they encourage and they enrich their employees really inspired me. Like, I want to lead a team. I, w- I, w- I want to get this team and how we're just all work together. And that just really inspired me along with um, reading books about leadership and watching programs or shows or just picking it up along the way. I'm like, this is something that I just feel leaders can be, I feel can either be born or they could be bred and raised and made effective different ways. But that's something I always wanted to do. Absolutely. And you mentioned your time at UPS. At UPS, you had the opportunity to lead many teams and be an integral part of others whether it be from the transition from Unix to Linux, projects to use technology to improve different processes, mm-hmm. leading a large infrastructure server, and more. Can you talk more about your experience at UPS? What was that like? When you see or when you think back to the culture on UPS, what made that stand out that you want to stay there for two full decades? Right, so um, great place to make a career. I started there in 1992. Wow. And... I was, um, you know, UPS or United Parcel Service. Some people hear UPS, they think, oh, the Postal Service? No. Or they hear UBS, the bank? No, United <laughs> Parcel Service, the brown company with the trucks or the package cars, as, as, as we would call them. I grew up there. Sure. I, I started there young. I was there. It was in 1992. I started there. And just, we were a private company back then. We didn't go public till 99. And it was just learning about the leaders and how the company started and just, Growing, and I set different milestones for myself. I want to be at this level at, by, by this age and, or this date. And different things motivate people differently. Differently, Like, what's your definition of happiness? What's your definition of retirement? How do you, how do you, how do you achieve success? So there were certain milestones and criteria and benchmarks that I wanted to hit at a certain time. And then uh, growing up there, I wanted to lead teams. I wanted to get into different areas more focused on hardware, and I ended up being the hardware design manager there that would supply the hardware for the global organization for the for the entire world, desktops, laptops, servers, get into virtualization. I learned a lot there, and then I hit all my milestones, and you know what? I was always a customer. Sure. Companies would come to me, Dell, HP, Cisco, VMware, Intel, would come to us and sell us their stuff or help us achieve goals uh, for our projects. I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move on. Uh, I've, I've done all my good here. I've reached a point where I'm ready to retire from here and I want to move on to um, see what, what it is like to be a vendor. Right. So that's why I went to Cisco, the networking company. That was three years in the making. It wasn't a, a snap decision. Three years in the making with Cisco, interviews, turned down two offers until the right one came along, and then it was time to go. For me to go to Cisco, and I wanted to become now a vendor, where I was on the engineering team, and I supported the sales force, and I worked with large global banks, like I said, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Chase, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citi, and I wanted to um, help them with their data center strategy, their data center vision around servers, around uh, uh, route switch, around uh, software defined, and um, and then after being there for a couple of years, I moved over 
to opportunity to come up at VMware. Virtualization. Love virtualization. I run at home, and I had an opportunity to go to VMware, which was uh, is part of Dell EMC. Sure. So another fifty billion dollar company. And also while I was there, I was a, I was a vendor again helping Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citi. And after being there for two years, I was like, I'm ready to go back and become a, a customer again. <laughs> so an opportunity came up for me right. after several interviews at KPMG, one of the big four accounting firms. Yes. Though they're not 50 billion in this company, a country, they're like 12 to 15 billion, but globally they're based out of the Netherlands. They're closer to 35, 40 billion. So they're, they're not small. Um, not too shabby. Right? Not, not, not too shabby. So I live and breathe large companies. So when I went to KPMG, I helped them with their private cloud with uh, compute and storage for a couple of years. And then I moved on to another department at KPMG uh, for another two years before I ultimately retired. And in that second department, I ended up working on resiliency. Sure. How hard make the infrastructure hard to knock down before we go into a disaster recovery mode or fail over to another data center. Mm -hmm. Make the current infrastructure, uh, software, hardware, applications as resilient as possible. And all my background, all my history helped with that. And I just was surrounded by great leaders, different, I had exposure to all those different companies. You talk about exposure and you talk about once you became satisfied at one place, you moved on to the next place. A lot of people in the current market are stuck in limbo in the sense that they don't know when it's the right time to leave their company. And you find a lot of people who are moving on very quickly, stay in a company for a year, year and a half, and they move on to the next. As someone who has both spent a couple of years and decades in different companies, what is your advice on how long you should stay at a certain company? And what made you specifically, you know, Let's focus on the transition from UPS to Cisco. What was the the last straw of sorts that made you say, okay, now is the time? It's not easy. What I just said it was three years in the making, not an easy decision. There are plenty of books and, and websites dedicated to when is the time to leave your current company. When you're stuck, when you're not happy, when you're being abused, when you're not making enough money, when you reached all your milestones, which happened to be my case, it was just time for me to move on. I hit all my goals. I was very happy with my career there, but I was ready for a different challenge, uh, new experiences, and you know, rip the bandaid off and let's let's go. People are afraid. People are saying, "Well, well, you know, um, a leap of faith or good luck." I said, "Well, I wish you luck. You're staying. You're staying behind in a rut, you know, and you're comfortable, and you're whether it's laziness or whether it's uh, lack of um, courage or or or." Um, you just need to, um, you'll know when it's time. When it's time, when the different opportunities come along, that it, you know, but you have to be careful. You don't want to, you know, it's the devil you know, the devil you don't know, kind of thing. But um, it's like when you come to a college or university, how did you know Seton Hall was right for you? You just feel it. Right. You just felt it, as opposed to going to Rutgers or Quinnipiac or somewhere else. Timing was right for me. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take this opportunity. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. You only, you only live, live once. Right. And life is too short. All those catchphrases, you know. And 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 uh, I'm running out of time. I want to do something different. I was ready to do something different, and make an impact and help customers. And that was time for me to go. 
and retire and move on. Did you feel or were you looking back in your career, being a design manager, as being a consultant or being a vendor, did you feel one to be more challenging than the other? Or looking back, would you have rather spent more time on being in one side of the sector versus the other? Yes. Ultimately, um, when I was a customer at UPS and at KPMG, I would see the vendors come in and come out and they would leave and we were stuck with if there's support issues and there was late nights because the system was down, you had to scramble to get things up. You don't necessarily have that when you're a vendor. So that was something that I wanted to explore further, help the customer get them up and running and then leave it to them to get their infrastructure going again. I want to, it's, it's challenging when you go to a customer and say Morgan Stanley and they, you talk to them about, well, what's your challenges? What solutions do I have? And maybe I don't have the right solutions. So I wish you well. Don't try and sell them something that, that, that they don't need, they don't want. You need to be open and, and build the trust and build a relationship with them. Because ultimately, they, they want to know a friendly face. And I want to help them be successful with their data center challenges, whether it's public or private cloud. But ultimately, if you don't have the right solution for them, you have to let them know that. Be honest with them and help them get it set up, help them test it. And just the exposure to a different, not only was I exposed to internal Cisco, internal VMware, but now I'm exposed to all these other companies that we're doing business with. And it was just, just an, an eye opener on how many, on how different companies are compared to each other. Right. In the way that they implement their backup strategies or their virtualization strategies or their buying strategies for hardware, software, applications. Amazing. And again, it comes down to the human connection. They want to buy from those that they have a connection with. They're comfortable with, absolutely. Going off human connection, you know, you spent time as a consultant and with extremely large, important companies that drive the global markets of the world today. Being in those meetings and talking with executives, what helped you most prepare for those or what helped you be successful in that role? So certainly at UPS, I had exposure to C-level management and uh, senior leadership. So I don't say it was a sales role, but I would bring in hardware and software and, and different technologies, test it and say, what is the best fit for the organization for the global enterprise? And then I would have to get in front of senior leadership, C-level managers, and pitch it to them, almost like a sales. Why do we need it? Why do we want to spend money? Why do we want to dedicate resources? This is how it's better than what we're doing. This is why we need it because we don't have this. And so I had that exposure with presenting to senior leadership. Then going over to Cisco on the engineering team and also VMware on the engineering team, learning from my peers, seeing how they present to different C-level managers at, at Citi, or at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and just um, learning from them on how they pitch the uh, the engineering uh, piece and how it would best help them uh, solve their problems. So learning learning from others, and I had a lot of exposure to it in the past. That's that is amazing to hear. And moving on a little bit, sure. you know, eventually your career led you to becoming a professor. Yes. And speaking on the human con connection. 
there are a lot of humans that you're connecting with as a professor, a lot of students, a lot of eager people, and we were talking a little bit off air on how they are eager to join the workforce. The transition between being in the workspace to being a professor, you're dealing with different types of people. Did that force you to change the way you led? If so, how? And if not, what challenges did you first face as a professor? So, students are hungry. They, uh, I, I, I like teaching to adult learners as opposed to like K through eighth grading. Um, I like teaching to adult learners and they're just hungry. They wanna learn from somebody that did it, that's been there and done that. I've got all those years of history and experience and I can give them real world scenarios. Because I, and I, wanna, I wanted to give back to the community. I'm teaching because I wanna be here. Not because I have to be here. Absolutely. I wanna be here. I wanna work with them. I wanna encourage them to be the best they could possibly be. Start saving now. Start preparing for the future. Start getting ready for retirement. Start thinking about retirement now in your early 20s. Absolutely. You don't want to play catch-up. And just making the transition, it was such a pleasure going from a 9-to-5 job or whatever, you know, I mean, 8-to-5 job. And my, my mother um, is was, was a teacher. So seeing her teach and, and educating students and seeing them grow up and be successful, it was just I wanted to be part of that, and I wanted to connect with different universities to, to do that and to help students any way I can, give back, give them my experience, what worked for me, what didn't work for me, and give them something to think about long term, because there are plenty of professors in my undergraduate and graduate days that I still think about, that still stuck with me, said something or did something to help me or in front of the classroom that made an impression on me, so I'm hoping to do the same even if I help only one student out of the hundreds that, and thousands that I have, I'm, I'm giving back. I'm giving back my, my, my time. Absolutely. With the students you see, is there something you feel that this generation of students is better off than previous generations? And is there something you see that you know maybe is lacking in today's mindset? So I think the answer is both. I see them more relaxed sometimes a little too relaxed where they lose a sense of urgency and a sense of getting it done, especially with assignments. You can't postpone the inevitable. If an assignment is, I give it on a Thursday, you do it on a Tuesday, do it before the weekend. A lot of students wait till the day of to hand it in and then you rush them. Perfect example, I remember a situation where we had time to submit our health benefits. You had a month. People waited to the day of to submit their health benefits. It was due by 6 p.m. So did a lot of other people. The system went down and crashed. And now they're scrambling because they're out of time. I learned that from my martial arts training, from my karate training. Discipline. Do your chores and your homework first. Then you can go out and play. So I like to get everything all buttoned up first. Then I can relax. Same thing with homework. You can't postpone the inevitable. Get it done so the weekend is free. So students are more relaxed. They're not as uptight as when I was a student, but they can also work against them where they are um, where they are uh, a little too relaxed and wait till the last minute. Absolutely. And you and you touched on uh, your karate experience, and I, I heard you teach. Why do you find it important to find other hobbies outside of your career interests? 
when often I hear that students don't want to be looking for help because they want to be tunnel vision on their, you know, career goals. Don't get me started. Look, <laughs> look, look like you're ready to get a life. People need to grow in different areas, especially workaholics. I mean, do whatever makes you happy. But like I said, one of the reasons why I left UPS, one of the reasons why I, I, I retired and I'm teaching, I want to do other things. I want to learn German. I, I, I'm, I'm running. I want to, uh, I'm training for an additional level of my black belt. I want to improve my chess game. I want to work on my photography skills. I want to learn more theology in the, in the, in the Catholic history. I'm working on writing, finish writing my book and self-publishing it. I want to run a formal 10K. I want to learn PowerShell, uh, Microsoft Windows PowerShell. So there's so many other things, hobbies. I volunteer at a cat shelter. I volunteer at my, at my local Catholic church. So many other things to do. The biggest thing that I am facing right now, time. You can make more money. You can't make more time. Don't waste time. Don't kill. I'm just killing time. Killing time. When you, when you get, get older, you're going to run out of time. The biggest thing, when there were some undergraduate students, you may come across this as a medical, when they're interviewing people on their deathbed, the number one thing they said was, I thought I had more time. I'll do it later. I'll have a baby when I have more money. Now, there's always timing and there's balance. You have to have balance and timing. But don't put off seeing your friends or family or doing things that you want to do. Within reason, I'll do it later. I, now is not the right time. Is it ever really the right time? You think you have more time. Anything can happen as soon as you walk up. Anything. Right. Unfortunately, speaking of time, we are running out. So I wanted to actually end with some rapid-fire questions to maybe get some recommendations from you. You know, I heard, you know, your current hobbies. What is your favorite way to de-stress? My favorite way to de-stress? I like to go running, spend time with family and friends. I'm a big PC gamer. Mouse, keyboard. I play all sorts of games, grand strategy games, uh, uh, first-person shooters, uh, real-time strategy games. So that's... Uh, a, a big, a big thing with me. Absolutely. Uh, your, maybe the most recent book you read? Sure. So there's a couple of them. Um, uh, Beyond Banner Brothers, which was the major Dick Winters that we spoke about. I also went back and started, I read The Hobbit, and I'm going to start reading The Lord of the Rings again. Big token fan, big fantasy fan. Absolutely. On the flip side, maybe your most recent TV show. I don't watch a lot of TV. My wife will tell you that very rarely. <laughs> um, but I will tell you, um, I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I like researching World War II history, or any kind of history. I, I just watched uh, a history about Quiznos, the, the sub shop that sells sub uh, um, sandwiches. But I did watch a miniseries called Generation War. It was a World War II miniseries about five young German friends in Nazi Germany. So I watch a little bit of TV, but it's mainly doing research on games, on gaming, and watching uh, history. Um, I watched the history of the Battle of the Bulge. I, I watch The Longest Day on, on YouTube. So all uh, Patton. So all kinds of war. Uh, war I like to. Well, I'm, I'm. I'm now learning about the history of Savannah, Georgia. I was just there, and about their history during the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, and why it's a haunted town because of that, <laughs> and their role that they played during those two U.S. wars. That is so fascinating. Maybe I will have to pick up some history videos. If you uh, have any recommendations, please email. That's my first love. <laughs> history is my first love. Uh, history of everything, of anything. I learned about the history not only of, of war, but of, say, jalapeno peppers. <laughs> Where did they come from? Peanuts. Sure. Pe peanut butter. I, I love really? history. 
history on anything and everything. Oh, wow. Wikipedia is my friend. <laughs> Research. The web is my friend. Books are my friend. I just love re-history. Re and finally, I know you may have a lot of goals for the rest of 2021 going into 2022. What is your main goal for the rest of the year? I want to become a better professor. That's why I'm getting feedback from my from – my, and this carries into 2022 as well. I want to get more influence from my students. I'm open. Talk to me. Help me become a better me. Help me make this class better. I thrive and value their time and their education. I love teaching young adults. I love learning from others. Professor Veshi, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And to our director, our distributor, and the rest of our team, you guys are the backbone, and we appreciate you very much. Uh, my name is Rishi Shah, and this is the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, signing off. On behalf of everyone at the Pasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU, for allowing us to use their facilities, and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership, on Instagram at Pasita Leaders, and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.